So today, um, we're going to have a good time. But we're going to be jumping in the week two of a series entitled The Creed. Now, I've been reading some like surveys and talking with some young adults and some junior high and high school students and millennials and Gen Z, and I've learned one thing, that most of us, if we be honest, don't have a really good comprehension, at least when it comes to things in Scripture. We don't really know uh, much about the Bible, much about theology, theos, uh, God, ology, the study of, right? We don't really have much of an idea of what really the Christian worldview is about, and studies are showing that. Studies are showing that uh, millennials specifically don't really know much about God and and, and things along, regardless if they come to church and things along those lines. And so this series is going to be probably one of the most intense series we've ever done, um, at least that I've ever done in young adults. Cody, before me, um, the old young adults pastor, he did three years in the book of Matthew, so we're not doing that. Um, (laughs) uh, Because why? Um, (laughs) So we're going to be spending uh, about eight weeks in, in this series, The Creed. And we're going to be learning a lot, Um, and my hope is that we learn um, basically the basic and fundamental tenets of the Christian faith, right? So um, we're going to talk about topics like sin. Um, You're going to hear things like harmatology. You probably won't hear that, but that just means the study of sin, or pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit. I get a lot of questions like that, like, what on earth is the Holy Spirit, like, what does he do uh, in our lives, and things like that, or um, soteriology, which is the study of salvation. Uh, And so we're going to be learning all these things. You'll never hear those words again. But (laughs) we're going to be studying all these different types of things. We're going to talk about eschatology, which is like, what on earth is the last book of the Bible talking about, right? There's like the sky is red, there's dragons flying around, like what is going on, right? So we're going to spend a week actually talking about at the end times. It's going to be intense. And then the last week, we're going to talk about the reality of hell. Um, I believe that hell is a real place. And as I've learned more about it and studied it, um, it uh, it is worse than I even imagined. I went to Bible school and things like that, and as I really kind of spent some time even over the last few weeks studying hell, um, it is worse than I ever thought. So we're going to talk about hell um, and and things along those lines and why the offer that Jesus gives us is so incredible. And so today, um, we're in week two of this series, Um, and if you have a bad memory like me or just to get us maybe on the same page, um, we've been studying something called the Apostles' Creed, right? And uh, the word creed comes from the Latin credo, so it just simply means I believe. And so centuries ago, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, um, these people came up with a creed. I believe uh, basically a paragraph of what is the Christian worldview? What, is it to, what does it mean to follow Christ and things along those lines? Now, the apostles, for those of us that don't really know who they were, just think of them as like Jesus' homies, right? Like they hung out with them, they talked with them, and things along those lines. They recorded some of the stuff that he did. Those are the apostles, right? Now, it's called the Apostles' Creed, not because the apostles wrote it. It was written about 250 years after all of them died, um, but because adequately and accurately summarize what the apostles taught. That's why it's called the Apostles' Creed. So why are we doing a series called the Apostles' Creed? Well, for the last 1,700 years, it's been kind of the, the anchor of the Christian kind of faith, other than Scripture, obviously. And it's kind of clearly and concisely summarized the basic tenets of the Christian faith. I love as one theologian, he says this. He says, the lines of the creed aren't merely words. They convey the essence of what we confess and believe as followers of Christ. In short, this is what it is. This is what this creed is. It's if you follow Christ, this is what you must believe. Underline must in your mind. This is what you must hold to. This is what you must believe. I've heard it said that the Apostles' Creed is like the Olympic torch, right? The flame is lit um, in Greece and then is transported by different runners throughout the world to the site of the game. And it's been kind of like that since the beginning of the games, you know, 2,000 years ago. And in a similar sense, the, gospel, or the goal of the Apostles' Creed is to pass on kind of the flame of faith Uh, that was lit so closely to the source of the historic Jesus to kind of clearly and concisely allow you and I to know what all 66 books of the Bible are kind of talking about, or the 27 books of the New Testament. So if if the Apostles' Creed has a goal, it's basically this, to bring the light of the flame of faith to dark places, 
to the world. And so today, here's what I want to do. I want to I first recap us what we kind of talked about last week, which is Article 1, Line 1 of the Apostles' Creed. And this is what we learned, and here's what we kind of talked about. It was, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Now, if you were here, you'll remember we talked about three things. Number one, that God created. God created everything. This is our origin story. We said that all worldviews, all religions, all ways to look at the world have an origin story. Where do we come from? Why are we here? Where are we going when we die? They answer all these types of questions. And so this part is our origin story. God created you. He created me. And the term was Amago Deo. He created us in his image. We are image bearers of God. We're not God, but we're image bearers of God. And then that was the first thing we talked about. The second thing we talked about is I believe there's good evidence to believe that God created the world around us. We talked about a lot of crazy things like the gravitational constant and talked about atmosphere and the size of the earth and the Goldilocks zone and a bunch of other crazy things you guys probably didn't care to know. But you were here and I I had a fun time. Um, And so yeah, I believe there's good evidence. There's good evidence to say that God created you, created me and the world around us. And then the last thing we talked about, which makes a lot of sense, if God really is our creator, then the only way we would know more our purpose is as we know our creator. And that's what we kind of ended on talking about last week. Today we're going to jump right into, uh, uh, right back into the Apostles' Creed in, in the next uh, section, which is Article 2, just line 2, and here it is. It's, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Now, when, when I read this, I, uh, the term Virgin Mary, for some reason, like I know I've heard it my whole, you know, like growing up and, and, and when I went to school and a bunch of things like that, but I've never heard a sermon on it because it's kind of weird right? Like, like to have a sermon or to like be taught about the virgin birth and things along those lines, it's kind of, it's kind of a little like weird, or at least in some sense of the way, a little, a little awkward. Now, I, I came across, um, you know what, I don't want to jump too far ahead of myself. I, I came across an article that, we'll get there in a second, it's super weird. It, it, it's, it's super weird. So the first part of this is kind of what I want to spend some time, just a little bit of time talking about, and that's the fact that I believe. Now, you're not going to find many people today that don't believe in Jesus. What I mean by that is that they don't believe that Jesus actually existed. In fact, that's sort of made on that like Jesus was an actual person, was it wasn't an actual person. That's made on like a popular level, but that's never actually made at a scholarly level. Almost all academics and scholars believe that there was a guy named Jesus Christ that lived 2,000 years ago in the Middle East. In fact, I, I looked at a study and it said 99% of Americans believe that Jesus existed. Only 56% believe that he was the God of the Bible. So let me quickly say it to you this way. Acknowledging that Jesus was real is not the basis of the Christian faith. In, right, even historians who deny that Jesus was God acknowledge that there was a guy that lived named Jesus Christ, right? By the way, Christ wasn't his last name. So many people think that. Um, the real issue is this. It's not that we believe um, that Jesus existed. It's what we believe about Jesus because that affects how we believe in Jesus. And so I, I love, um, this, this summer I've tried to grab a bunch of books and I've been spending a lot of time reading and things like that. And one author I, I really gravitated towards is a guy named C.S. Lewis. You may, you may know him uh, famously from uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. That's kind of like what made him famous, right? And so there's actually a few um, quotes. There's actually one quote, we broke it up in three segments for you guys, that I want you guys to um, uh, kind of track with me because he's kind of talking about this idea. He says this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. Go to the next part. Um, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man and, was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. 
So, in other words, here's what this is what he's saying. Jesus is either a liar or a lunatic, or he's, he's Lord. He is who he claims to be. He cannot be a good teacher or a moral man. Why? Because good teachers and moral men don't say things like, believe in me, or spend eternity separated from me, and all that is good, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth in this place called hell. You don't read things like that and go like, oh, he's such a sweetheart. You know, like, it just doesn't, that's not, like, you can't, you, you can't hear things like that and then think that Jesus is, was a good man or was a good teacher. He has to be a liar, lunatic, or he has to be Lord. Now, if there's one thing I want you guys to know today, it would be that the centerpiece of the Apostles' Creed, and, 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 and in fact, it's the centerpiece of Scripture is not a doctrine, it's not theology, it's not even a list of do's and don'ts, but it's actually a name. I mean, all Scripture points to a name. All of heaven points angels to a name. And, and in Scripture, it says that this is the name that, above, that is above all names, and that's the name of Jesus. Or his disciples would have called him Yeshua, which is Hebrew for Jesus, right? Or Yeezy for short. Oh, when he's rapping. Just kidding. But uh, here, here's what I was thinking about this last week. When I was thinking about Jesus, the person of Jesus, that he lived as a human being and walked on this earth, the thing that came to my mind is when I think about the centerpiece of Scripture and the Apostle Creed that, that it is Jesus, it gives you and I something incredible. And the thing that it gives that's really incredible is this revelation uh, that I think is transformative for all of us. And that is this, that God is personal and knowable. God is personal and knowable. Now, track with me because this is crazy. That you can know on a personal level the creator of all things. Now, that may be one of the greatest learnings that Jesus ever had to impart, or maybe one of the, uh, uh, the greatest uh, messages we can learn from his life is that there is a God that desires to be incredibly involved in your life and in my life. And so today what I want to do is I want to teach the latter half of our section of the Apostles' Creed um, backwards to you because I want us to kind of end in a place, and my hope, my prayer is we would end in a place where we can all see that Jesus is who we claim to be, that he's God, but the second part of that is that he's actually Lord. And when we talk about Jesus being Lord, I want you to track with me. When we talk about Jesus being Lord, what we're saying is that he is the primary authority that governs this world and our lives. And that's a big statement that he's saying. And that's a big statement that we, uh, if we are followers of Christ, then, then we need to believe in. And so here, here's the, um, the part we're going to be talking about if we're going backwards. It says this, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our, Lo- our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Now, I said earlier, right, I've never heard a sermon uh, on the virgin, like just on the virgin birth, right, on Mary and things along those lines. Because like I said, it's, it's a little weird. So I, I, I googled this, um, and here was a study I came, I came across. It was, uh, the study was called Like a Virgin. So Chelsea, if you go on my search history, I promise you it's, it's pure, all right? Like this was, this was from Barna, Christian Union. All right, here it is. Um, oh, by the way, so here, here's a question. Did you know that uh, virgin births aren't just for teenage Jewish girls hanging out in Bethlehem barns anymore? 1%, 0.8% of, of, of American women claim they became pregnant while being a virgin. What? <laughs> Can you imagine that? I told this to uh, Michael, the worship leader, uh, before service, and he said, do you think they're lying? I was like, <laughs> yes, I think they're lying. Like, what, do you, what do you mean? You know? like, and I was like, yo, let, let me tell you real quick, that ain't no Jesus in there, right? There's a, there's a demon baby in there, right? Like, there's no chance, right? No chance, all right? <laughs> I, I think about this a lot, actually. Not, not demon kids, I, even though I do junior high. Well, no, here's what I think about. I, imagine, like, imagine being, imagine being Joseph. You know, like, you're, you know, like, you're sitting down, like, eating Pizza Hut with your wife, and all of a sudden she turns over to you, and she's like, hey, uh, we're going to have a kid, but, like, you're not the dad. God is. You're like, 
<laughs> what? Like, you'd, be like, you'd be on the phone so quick with Pizza Hut trying to figure out what type of mushrooms they put on there. You'd be tripping, right? Like, you'd be like, what? what? Like, dude, nothing short of an angel popping up. Would, and even then, I would be like, yo, I'm hallucinating. I'm tripping out right now. Like, there's no way. I know how this works. And Joseph wasn't stupid either, right? Like, he knew how it works, right? So back to something that's more important, right? So the, the, the virgin birth is important for a few reasons, but we'll just quickly talk about two. Number one, it shows that uh, salvation ultimately must come from God, right? So the virgin birth is kind of this unmistakable reminder that salvation, that it, it can never come through human effort, but only by the work of God. That's super important for us to understand. And then number two, the virgin birth made it possible for Jesus to be both man and God, that's another really important thing. In the early church, there was a lot of heresies. That means unbiblical teachings that were coming in about Jesus. And this thing was attacked more than anything else. So it's important that we, as followers of Christ, understand that he was 100% man, 100% uh, God. This is known as something called the hypostatic union. It just talks about that Jesus had these, these two natures within the one person that was Jesus. He was a human and he was divine. He did not strip himself of his godlike or his, his divinity by becoming a person. He remained God and, and a person all at the same time. And the next thing we're going to talk about is the other part and the last part of, of the article we're studying, which is this. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. Now, if there's anything that the Apostles' Creed kind of encourages us to confess— it's two things. One, that Jesus is God, and then two, it's that Jesus uh, is Lord. Now, when I talk with the average person, whether it be at a coffee shop or whatever it is, I don't think they really have an adequate or accurate picture of who Jesus was and who he is today, right? And so when we confess that, that Jesus is God's only son, what we're talking about there is that he has no competition. I mean, it's, it's an expression of his uniqueness. Track with me. This isn't a genealogy, Right? Like when we read that like he's God's son, it's not saying that he's the literal son of the father, that in some way the father predated Jesus. That's not at all what it's saying. Rather, it's actually a title of his, here's another big word, incarnation. And when, when you think of incarnation, the, the funny way I just remember it is God in a bod, right? That's what it means, right? So it means that Jesus was literally God in human form. Jesus was God in flesh. Then the second thing is when we confess that Jesus is Lord, we're confessing two things. The first thing we're confessing is that we are saved by him and him alone. You're not saved by your good efforts or by good deeds. You're not saved by helping old people cross the street. That's not what saves you. You are saved by the cross and the cross alone. Paul talked a lot about this. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, starting in verse 8 and 9, he says, um, we are saved by grace through faith alone, not by works, so that no man shall boast, but, but, but through Jesus. That's literally what he lays out. Or um, in the book of Romans, chapter 10, in verse 9, he says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Paul is saying that if you make a statement of faith, Jesus is Lord, and that statement, and this is very important, that statement is in line with the faith of your heart, you'll be saved. So I want to point out something to you that, that it's actually really interesting. I think so many of us just glance right over, and that's the part about your heart, because even Satan believes that Jesus is Lord. Right? He, has a, he has a more complete and, per, and perfect view of who Jesus is than you and I do. But he has not laid down his life and is not living in accordance with Jesus actually being the Lord over his life. And so I wonder, and I, please don't hear this from a condescending tone or anything along those lines, but I wonder, I wonder how many people in this room are just like this, right? Where we're like, yeah, we're Christian, but our life is not matching up with that proclamation in any sense of the way. And, and, I, and I know this to be true of us because when I was sitting in those very seats and there was a pastor up here to giving me a message just like this, it resonated with me. I called myself a Christian, but I wasn't doing anything that was Christ-like. 
And so it's actually super easy to find out if you are this type of person. You just have to answer these two questions, and I have them for you guys here. It's since knowing and following Christ, has anything about my life, attitudes, and habits changed? Next question is, do I have a faith that asks nothing of me? A faith where I sacrifice and surrender nothing. Now, if the answer to the first question is no, and the answer to the second question is yes, then chances are you're the very people that Jesus describes in the book of Matthew chapter 15, verse 8. He says this. I think I have the slide for you. It says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You know, the lordship of Christ, the lordship of Christ is the single greatest and probably the most challenging thing, but also the most rewarding thing he has to offer you and offer me. Years ago, I, I stumbled across an article on The Onion. You guys ever read The Onion? I just do it because it's hilarious. Um, and I like laughing. So I came across this article, and I think I have the headline for you. Um, the article was this. It's, uh, yeah, I make my own hours, says a man about to get fired. So I like, clicked on that because I thought it was funny, right? And uh, I'll read it. You know, uh, <laughs> on the verge of losing his job, right? Because he goes, he works as he pleases, comes in his own hours, and things like this. Imagine you had an employee like this, right? They just comes in whenever they want. They don't listen to you. They're not really accomplishing much. They're, they're, they're just not good at what they're doing. And, they, and they're definitely not listening to what you're asking of them, right? You're probably going to fire them, right? They're probably not going to be at your business for that long, right? Because they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. You're the boss. They're supposed to be listening to you. are the authority over, over their life while they're working for you. And I think the authority, not a dictator, but you know, like, like you're, you're their authority. Now, on the other hand, and maybe at the same time, Jesus presents this kind of very same idea to us, this idea of Lord, right? In fact, he begins to say this in kind of the parable we're going to be jumping in today, and it begins in Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 46. It says this. It says, why do you call me Lord? Why do you call me boss? Why do you call me authority and not do what I say? In other words, here's what he's communicating to us. You can't accept him as Savior with also and without accepting him as your Lord, without submitting to him as your Lord. In other words, if you want a Savior to save you from your sin, you also have to give him your life and, sur and surrender it to him as your Lord. You cannot separate. As much as we would like to, Savior and Lord, they go together. And so if there's anything that this article, this part of the Apostles' Creed is telling you and it's telling me, and I want you to listen, is it's prompting, it's asking us with, the, with, a, with an open posture to God saying, God, I trust you. I give you my life. Use, use it in any way you see fit. Here I am, I am yours. You are the Lord over my life. Now, as I say this, this makes us incredibly uncomfortable, right? Because I remember hearing this message and I'm like, who is he to ask everything of me? Why would I, why would I, why would I want to do that? This makes us like uncomfortable because we don't like the idea of submitting or having authorities over our lives. But I need you to hear this. This makes us uncomfortable and it only makes us uncomfortable because we don't know the character of our God. See, I have no problem submitting to my wife because I know her character. She has no problem submitting to me because she knows my character. That all I ever want for her that all I ever want for her is for her life to blossom, that she experiences more joy and more satisfaction, and that her life be filled with more love as she knows more about the very God who created her and put us together. And see, our uncomfortability in submitting our lives to God stems from the very truth that we don't know the God we say we do. If you're struggling with an area in your life and you don't want to give it our finances, relationships, whatever it may be, it's because you're not leaning and trusting God. And by the way, all sin stems from the exact and very same place. It stems from three places. Number one, we don't trust God. Number two, we don't believe he actually knows what's best. And then number three, we don't believe that he actually loves us. And so why would I give my life to a God that I don't trust? Why would I give my life to a God that I believe doesn't have the right way? 
Or why would I give my life to a God that I believe is more vengeful than he is merciful or loving or kind? The reality is because we don't actually know the God of scriptures. Because the God in the Bible, the character that's illuminated to you and me, is a God that's worth our trust. In fact, almost all of the Psalms and Proverbs in the Old Testament talk about God being trustful, talk about God being faithful. He's never going to forsake or leave you or abandon you. All of Scripture talks about God's wisdom and His discernment, that He knows more than you and me. The terms here are omniscient, that's all-knowing, omnisapient, that's all-wise. God sees all outcomes. He has, he has greater wisdom and discernment and sees things from a larger picture than you and I do. And all of Scripture points to this idea that God wants nothing less for your life to blossom, for your life to grow. God is for your joy. God is for your flourishing. And that's why when He says things like, I, I don't want you to, I don't want you to have sex before you're married. I don't want you to get intoxicated. I don't want you to pour your life into things of this world because what I am for is you. And the things that you're doing or if you're engaging in this type of behavior is not going to lead you to the life that I hope you can have. And see, seeing God as our authority and actually living that out is the only thing that's ever going to bring you and I peace. Seeing God as our authority and submitting to him is the only thing that's going to ever give you purpose or give you uh, joy or satisfaction or fulfillment or direction or whatever it may be. And so today I just want to quickly point out a parable that Jesus told. I think brings this truth kind of the forefront of our minds. It, it helps us see God as our Lord, but not like that he's like this dictator. Because when, when, when we hear that, we think of God being like this, this, this dictator who is like malicious and angry and mean, but that's not at all the biblical view of the God that we have. And so you can follow along with me. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to open to Luke chapter 6. If not, I'll have it up on the screens. This is known as the wise and foolish um, builders. Now, now, a parable, for those of us who don't know, is a fictitious, a fake story that Jesus told to illustrate, to tell, uh, to bring to light a truth about him, about us, about the world, or whatever it may be. It says this, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundations on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against the house and it could not shake it because it had, it, had been built, it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. Other, parable, other uh, books talk about this being the sand. Uh, when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and ruined of the house was great. How many people, how many people come to God when their lives, their relationships, their finances are in shambles? As their world is kind of collapsing around around them, collapsing down around them, when it doesn't have to be that way in the first place. You know, one of the most amazing things about the God that we worship, about the character of our God is this, that he welcomes people no matter the conditions that made us cry out to him in the very first place, but he still says this, and here's what I want you to listen to. He still says, but I still have better for you. You don't have to be doing those types of things any longer. Maybe let me say it this way. More often than not, if we would live like Jesus was Lord, we wouldn't find ourselves in the very situations that have us crying out to him in the first place. Crying out to God to rescue us from whatever we've got ourselves in. And so if there's something I want your heart to know, not just your mind to know tonight, it's this, that God has better for you. God doesn't want your relationships to suck or you to be used or abused or whatever it may be. God doesn't want you to have the ache of loneliness. God doesn't want you to hate your career but love the money so you continue to do it zapping your joy and all the other things that God wants you to have. And he doesn't want those things for you because he loves you. One day, I'm going to be a dad. And some of the things that I was doing, some of the people I was hanging out with, some of the activity, attitudes, and thoughts that I was having as a kid, I would hate 
for my kid to have the same things and the same thoughts, the same addictions, the same whatever they may be that I had. See, we view God, I think, wrongly. We view it as like this, like Simon says, that I need to do these things or else. No, it's it's that God is our Father. And when he sees us doing things that are self-destructive in very nature, it hurts him. It, it, It tears his heart apart. See, he knows that sin and disobedience is going to entrap and it's going to enslave us to people, things, habits, and attitudes that are only ever going to bring the death of your joy and eventually your soul. And so he says things like, yeah, there, there are things that I, I don't want you to do, but it's because I am for you and I'm not against you. See, seeing Jesus as Lord is, is all about believing that he's trustworthy, knowing that he knows what's best, and then finally that he loves you. And because of all that, if you, had these, if God, if you thought that God was trustworthy, if you 100% of the time believed he knew what was best and that he deeply loved you and there was nothing you could do to change that, why else would you not want to give him your life? It's, it's, it's the fracturing of one of these three things that inhibits us from surrendering and moving forward and giving our lives over to Christ, to see him as, as Lord. It's the fracturing of one of these three things. So the reality is, if there's something I want you to understand tonight, it's this, that we're all building a life. In fact, between 20 and 30 is probably the time that we're all architects. We're all building in some capacity, in some way. But see, the materials we use don't actually matter. Money, houses, materialism, those aren't the things that actually matter. What really matters is the foundation. And you are either building your life on the foundation of this world and then adding Jesus into a room because you're believing what the authorities of this world says are important. I mean, think of it this way. Why is there this pressure to finish college in four years? Who cares? And there's, even you're like, you know, like, why is there this pressure to finish college in four years? What if God was like, actually, I want you to finish it in five because I want you to go at a slower pace because I actually want you, yeah, you're, you're growing intellectually and you're growing in knowledge and all these other types of things, but I want your character to grow too. And so I want you to slow down and get involved in the church. What if? But there's this pressure that's placed upon us that we need to be doing these things or be busy or whatever it may be, or we're, we're slothful, we're lazy, we're going nowhere with our lives. And so we, 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 just put on all of this pressure to perform when we know that the things that, like, why do we care about getting certain jobs, living in certain neighborhoods? We care about, like, status and prestige and money and, 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 and all of these things that we know don't lead to happiness, but yet we, would, we always have the mentality, I'd rather cry in a Bentley. <laughs> why? Why so much of our life, right, can, like, like, directed to places we know is not going to be fulfilling? Why, why, do, we, why do we have this need as young adults to be in relationships? There's, there's this, like, if I'm, if I'm past 25 and I'm not in a relationship, like, oh, gosh, you know, like, at every, every family gathering, people are like, what's wrong with you? you know, it's like, nothing. <laughs> Potentially, God could be like, I, I want you to be single for a reason right now. It, has, it just has nothing to do with the world around you and everything. It's just, I have something for you, and I want you to be single.